Morning. Good morning. Not sure why that played twice, but you know, is what it is. So if you uh, if you're new here and there's, there's a few new faces this morning, uh, we for the last few weeks or so have been going through a, a series called Problematic Passages. Each summer we we try to do something fun. We generally like to preach through books of the Bible here in some capacity, but in the summer we take a little bit of a break for a couple weeks and do something fun. And so for the past year we've been asking people in the church to submit. Uh, to me, to the church, passages that they find to be difficult or confusing or downright weird. And so we've dealt with some doozies before uh, over the past few weeks. I think this is week five, if I'm remembering right. Uh, We've looked at uh, at questions of, is God genocidal? We've looked at what's up with Moses and his foreskin and some of the weird things that come as a result of that. We've asked some difficult questions about how we relate to the government uh, as the people of God in Romans 13. And and today we're looking at uh, a question that is a passage that's maybe fairly innocuous on the surface. You would read it and not think a whole lot of it. It's one of those verses in the Old Testament that on its own is easy to ignore, and most people who read through it tend to ignore it. Uh, But the confusion doesn't come from the passage itself, but from the controversy that surrounds the passage. And what I mean by that is it, it comes from the way this passage has been used in today's culture and really throughout much of history Um, against Christian people and arguments. And so this morning we're looking at Leviticus 11, 9 through 12, and it's God's command against eating shellfish. Yes, God has a command that says you shall not eat shellfish, essentially. Um, He doesn't actually say shellfish, but he tells us what we are allowed to eat in the waters, and shellfish doesn't make the cut. And so that's generally considered to be the, the shellfish passage. And while this was a submitted passage, it functions along with a dozen of others, because there are all throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament, a whole series of commands and laws that, that you would find to be oddly specific and seemingly like incomprehensible. One of the laws that we have on the books in the Old Testament is that you can't wear clothing that is made from two different kinds of fabrics. So if you're wearing a cotton poly blend this morning, we're going to have to talk about your your membership and being intact and all those kinds of things. But there's some weird stuff in there, right? And so the question that makes this controversial is this. How can Christians seemingly pick and choose what Old Testament laws to follow or not? Or how can Christians pick and choose which laws get to sustain, right? There's some stuff in the, New Te- in the Old Testament that the people of God were commanded to do that we clearly don't do anymore. So as far as I've been your pastor here for maybe two years or so plus, we, we really don't have bull sacrifices in any kind of regularity. Although I keep trying to get the session to, to put one of the altars up here. They just keep saying no. So we don't do those things. But there are things in the Old Testament we keep and there's things we reject. And one of the arguments that people have against Christians is that there seems to be an arbitrary nature. Almost a hypocrisy nature, right? So we kind of pick and choose which things we think are important to keep and which ones aren't. And that's not really fair because there's some laws in the Old Testament that are really contested in the culture today, right? It looks hypocritical that Christians choose what to obey and what to ignore. And so we'll start, as we always do, by standing up together and and hearing from God's Word, our main passage this morning, just out of context, on its own. And then we'll dig in and we'll see if we can't come up with a understanding as to what's going on here. This is uh, Leviticus 11, verses 9 through 12. These you may eat, 
of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales of the swarming creatures in the waters and of all the living creatures that are in the waters is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. Again, believe it or not, it's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So yes, everything in there is regarded as detestable. And, and the hard question that usually gets asked is this. It's a, it's a play on today's modern cultural ethics. And we're not going to get into, uh, we're not going to spend time this morning getting into the, the sexuality debate that comes as a result of this. But it is probably the most used time this passage gets employed, right? This is the passage that is used to argue against traditional marriage. They say, look, all these things were forbidden in the Old Testament. Clearly, we eat shellfish today and we're allowed to have multi-cloth fabric. So why can't the other things be permissible as well, Right? And again, this is not a passage about sexual ethic. We go there every once in a while, and we will go there sometimes, but today is not about that. This passage is a far bigger, far further reaching passage than just sexual ethic. It's about which laws that the Old Testament prescribes to God's people apply and which ones don't, and how we choose, right? So to unpack this, we're going to spend this morning asking and answering a few key questions. Number one, what was the purpose of some of these Old Testament, more obscure laws like this one. Like, what, why would God look at the, the fish and the, and, the, and the creatures of the sea and say, fins and scales, eat. Not fins and scales, don't eat. Because I don't know about you, shrimp is delicious. <laughs> Amen? Amen? How many of you eaten shrimp in the last year? Do we think we're condemned for the eating of our shrimp? Is there a logical reason why we might be condemned for the eating of our shrimp? No. And so it is important to understand the why. So why, why was it that God would say you can't have this? It's part of a whole lot of obscure laws. Inside of Leviticus 11, it's part of a whole system of food laws, right? We just talked about the, the water part, but God talks about certain creatures they're not allowed to eat that fly in the air and that, that crawl on the ground. And he gives them kind of a very large, seemingly arbitrary list of things they can or can't consume. Right? or can or can't do, or very specific ways that they are to worship. So what's the purpose? Number two, why does God not allow the Israelites to consume this specific food? Right? So what's the point of the laws, and then why this specific food? Number three, are we as Christians still bound by Old Testament law? In other words, do we have to follow it, any of it, all of it, some of it, part of it, how much of it? And then finally, if not all, then how do we know which ones? If the answer is you have to follow some Old Testament law but not others, well, then it would be helpful if we didn't just pick and choose based on the flavor of the week, but we had some kind of guiding principles or rubric that we could figure out what part of the Old Testament remains law for us today and which part does not. So that's where we're going to spend our morning, and then we'll go have cake together. Amen? To help answer this, there, there's, there's something that we really need to do when it comes to Scripture, and that is to look at it in the macro. It, it, it helps. Sometimes we zoom out on the chapter and we look at kind of what comes before or after. This is one of those times where we really look at the entirety of God's Word in its most macro 30,000-foot view. And so the Bible is, is not really Old and New Testaments. It's not really, here's the books, so to say, and these are the order in which they're in. As a matter of fact, when you open your Bible, the books are totally out of chronological order. 
Um, if you get a Hebrew Bible, the last two books in the Old Testament are Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles. So we, we have this order. Even chapters and verses were not a thing that was part of the original Bible. When, when Peter wrote First Peter, he didn't put verse numbers in there. It was just a letter, right? We break it up so that we can find our place in a more easy way. But the Old and New Testaments weren't really like, here's the end of the Old and New Testaments. It's a division that made sense because it's what happened before Jesus, and then the New Testament is what happens after Jesus. But they aren't separate things. Well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Old Testament's confusing, and I don't really like it. I just, I'll just stick with Jesus. You can't do that because it's one comprehensive, cohesive, start-to-finish story of the redemption of God's people. Right? And so we have to look at it that way. And so when we look at the macro of Scripture, what we see is from the very beginning, God makes covenants with his people. And the best way to look at Scripture as a whole book is through covenantal nature. We look at the various times that God covenants with his people. Sometimes with individuals, sometimes with the whole of his people, sometimes with the entire human race. He covenants with his people. And the covenants build upon another from the start to finish. Right? And so the first covenant that God makes is the covenant with Adam. He creates Adam, first man, and Eve, and he puts them in the garden. And the covenant is this. This is all yours. Take whatever you want. Eat from the trees. Take the animals. You get to name them, and, and they're delicious. Here, have you tried bacon? Have some. Right? Everything that you want is yours. There's the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Please do not eat from that tree. That is, that is not for you to eat from. If you eat from it, you'll surely die. Right? That's the covenant. No rules. Do whatever you want. All is yours. Just don't eat from that tree, or you'll die. Right? Do this, you live. Do this, you die. Pretty simple. And so the Adam and Eve obviously transgress on that covenant. They eat from the tree and they're banished out of the garden. And one of the biggest repercussions from that is they're removed from the presence of God and they're no longer able to be with him. And so the rest of scripture is really a, a story of how that relationship is restored. Right? God immediately begins his active work to try to restore his people unto himself. That, that chasm that sin created is not something that God wants, and so the rest of Scripture is that redemptive story. God is going to buy us and bring us back into his fold. How is he going to do it? Right? Well, the next hint we get, among others, is when he shows himself to a man named Abraham, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you will, you will go to the land that I give you. You will walk with me in faith, and in exchange, I will make you... <clears throat> descendants as numerous as the stars. And Abraham and his wife were really, really old, past children having age, right? And so they laughed, and so the Lord gave them a child, even though they laughed, and he named him Isaac, and Isaac means laughter, because God has a really cool sense of humor, right? And so God begins to fulfill that promise. He says, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars, and that happens. The descendants of Abraham are as numerous as the stars, so then we get to the Exodus, and we see that, that that descendancy, those people, have grown into a very large number, and they find themselves enslaved under Egypt. Right? Those are the Israelites. They're not really that yet, but they're, the, they're people of God that haven't been called out yet. But they are the descendants of Abraham, living as slaves in Egypt, and God pulls them out of Egypt. That's the story of Moses. And when they are pulled out and free from the oppression of Pharaoh... One of the first things that God does is he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, look, you are my people. And that's the next covenant. He says, look, I will be your God. You will be my people. 
And the way that you will know that you're my people is by obeying the laws that I give you. They are to make you distinct. There are things in my house that we do that you don't do in your house. There's ways that we pray. There's things that our kids do. There's routines that they have. There are ways that you can tell that my kids are mine. Generally, you can tell my son is mine by the fact that he's the loudest in the building. But there's distinctives that make him a lats and not someone else. God has distinctives for his people. He says, I'm going to gather you as mine. You will be my nation, Israel. He births himself a, a nation, a godly nation, to represent him on this earth, to be his chosen people, his race. And he makes them into a nation. He says, listen, you're a nation now. There's some things about this nation that they're going to make people see you as you. You're going to have these distinctive traits. You're going to follow these laws. Right? These are the things that you're going to do. And that's how you will know that you are my people. Right? And so much of the initial law is made up of things that we still have today as well. Right? But there's some things that are specific to God. And so in Exodus, we see this promised thing to Abraham realized. He has the descendants. They're greatly multiplied. They're rescued. They are made to be his people. And then God begins to give them not just the Ten Commandments, but these very specific laws and regulations. I mean, come on. There's a law in Deuteronomy 23 about how you bury your waste when you go number two in camp. Look it up. I'm not going to give you the verse because I want you to... It'll be helpful if you just read Deuteronomy 23. There's literally a law about how you bury your excrement when you, when you poop in the camp. He gets really specific. There's laws about fabric, how, how you clean yourself, about foods you can and can't eat, about how you are to worship. I mean, gosh, the ritual law about cleaning yourself before you approach God in the tabernacle alone is something that would take you a year to properly understand if you were to read it for the first time. He has all these very specific laws. So why have them, including the one that we're looking at today? Well, we actually get an answer a little bit later in our chapter in Leviticus um, 11. This is 44, and this is right after he's given them some more food laws about people or things that crawl on the ground. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defy yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. The word holy means what? Set apart. He gives them these laws to set them apart. And he tells them that they are here to consecrate themselves unto holiness. Set apart and distinct. So here's the reason there's a shellfish law. There were people and tribes and nations who ate shellfish. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong with shellfish. It's that by not eating it, they make themselves distinct from the other people, groups, tribes, nations, and tongues that are around them. They look different. So much of culture at that time happened around meals. And so when you eat with a Jewish person in that time, there'd be some very distinct things. There's no way that a good Israelite person obeying God's laws could get through dinner with another person from another tribe without it being painfully obvious that they are one of God's people because they have all of these things that make them distinct. Wow, you prepare food differently than you do. You have a really hard list of dietary restrictions. Do you ever have somebody come to your house 
And like, you invite them to dinner, like three weeks, and then three weeks go by, and it's the day of dinner, and it's like two hours before dinner, and they text you, by the way, I'm allergic to gluten, and, and meat. I don't eat meat, and I'm, not, I'm lactose intolerant, and I, 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 and I can pretty much eat like this, this, these two things. And like you're halfway through cooking dinner going, the Israelites would have looked very distinct by obeying the various laws that they have. And so, again, shellfish is not about shellfish. It's about looking different. People mixed their fabrics, and so he wanted them not to, so they would look different. People worshipped a certain way. He wanted them to worship this way so that they would look different, so that they can't look at those around them and be like them. So much of the detailed law given is less about morality and more about uniqueness. His people shall be consecrated as holy. When you look at an Israelite by how they dress, by how they act, by how they eat, by how they think, by how they worship, it will be painfully obvious to you. Let me ask you, when you go out into the workplace, into the world, how painfully obvious do you stand out as a Christian? That's not a guilty challenge. I'm just drawing a comparison, right? Maybe you have a Hobby Lobby thing up in your office that has, you know, you know, some, some kind of scripture on it or something. But, but like today, think of the ways. What are the things that distinguish us? If we walk around, you could go through a mall of people and you really don't know who the Christians are just by looking at them, just by observing them. Maybe you see somebody pray in the food court and you go, okay, they could be, but they don't, that doesn't mean they're Christian. That just means they're religious, right? We don't really have that much of a distinction today. That can make it hard. Wouldn't it be great if we like just could go to any place and we just knew who all the Christians were. That would make things really easy in some context, wouldn't it? But back then, God wanted it to be painfully obvious. There's all of these nations, but you are my nation. You are mine. You will stand out. You will be different and unique, right? And so we have these weird things. They conducted themselves differently. Some of the laws just had purposes that were helpful for, for kind of usefulness sake. I joke about the, the number two law in camp, but they would say when they went to battle in the camp that the battle was holy ground because God was the one that was earning them victory. And so they believed that in the camp, God was among them. And so if God is among them, well, you better make sure that that camp is pristine. And so you bury your waste in a very specific way, in a very specific place, at a specific distance, and make sure that the camp is to remain clean because the presence of the Lord dwells there. How many of you deep clean your house for certain friends but not others? Because you want to make an impression, right? If you knew the president was going to come to your house, would you not clean it? I don't care what you think about the president. We're not getting political here, right? But hopefully, even if you despise the president that happens to be in power, if they were going to come to your house, you probably would still clean up a little bit and wipe the bathroom down, right? I would hope so. They keep their camp clean because they want to respect the Lord's presence that is among them as he earns them victory. And so that's what we look at when we look at our specific passage. It's a food law designed to make them look different. And then comes Jesus in the redemptive story. And Jesus turns everything upside down. There's two really big things that Jesus changes. Number one, he dies on the cross to fulfill the law. Matthew 5, 17. I've come to to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So he comes, Jesus comes, he lives on earth, he dies, and his death on the cross fulfills the obligations of the law. 
So God says, here's all the laws. If you want to be right with me, if you want to have eternal life, you have to keep all these laws perfectly. Well, no one can do that. And the answer is, of course you can't. It's impossible. We're sinners. We need Jesus. Jesus comes. He lives. He dies on the cross. He's resurrected. And he pays the penalty for our sin. And so he fulfills the law that none of us could fulfill for us. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that when Jesus comes, the Christian faith spreads from the Jews to the Gentiles, which means all people. It's no longer a faith that is just for Jewish people. And why that matters is because the Jews were God's holy nation. After Jesus in the New Testament, Christianity is no longer a nation thing, but a global, all-people thing. And so before Jesus... All of the identity of God's people was tied into a national identity, right? This isn't a debate about whether the U.S. is a Christian nation, but the point is that everything surrounding God's activity was centered around his actual nation. They were a distinctive people with a specific culture and a way of doing things. Afterwards, Christianity is no longer a cultural national thing, but a global thing. Christianity is something that moves into all places and all nations and all cultures, and they all look different. Go to worship at a church in Nigeria. It's very different than here. Or Brazil. Or Russia. Or China. Right? Or even a couple yards down the street. Right? Christianity looks very different depending on geography or denominational backgrounds or culture of the people that they grew up in or the music choices and all these things. It's no longer about here's the rigid specific way that every Christian has to look so that we know they're gods. But with Jesus, everything spreads to the masses. Right? And so let's look at both of these more closely, the fulfillment of the law and the spreading. First, the fulfillment of the law, does it mean that we no longer keep any of the Old Testament rules? Well, if Jesus has fulfilled the law, well, then we don't have to fulfill it anymore. So we get to ditch all that Old Testament stuff, right? Well, maybe kind of not so simple. All right. Let's look at a passage from Romans 13. If you recall, we were in Romans 13, 1 through 8, or 1 through 7, when we talked about should we obey the government. This is the very next passage in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Hear that. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, any other commandment, all of the commandments given in the Old Testament are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So what we see here is that under Jesus, we move from law of the Old Testament regulations to a law of love. When you love God and neighbor, you fulfill the law by doing that. Jesus doesn't excuse us from the law. Quite the opposite. When you see Jesus in his ministry, half the time he's talking about the law, he's actually making it harder. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I tell you, if you look at somebody with lust, you've already committed adultery. He makes the law even harder than it is. But he says, I've fulfilled it. 
The passage is telling us that law obedience is summed up in the act of love. When we love God and love others the way God does, we don't kill them. We don't steal from them. We don't covet their things. All the commandments are summed up by love. When we love the Lord our God with every fiber of our being, and when we love our neighbor as ourselves, the natural consequence is that those commandments get summed up into that. And so it's not about the individual laws anymore. It's about the idea that love fulfills all of them. So that's number one. The law doesn't change, but the punishments, the consequences change. We no longer are slaves to the law. We're no longer condemned by the law because Christ has died for us and fulfilled it. And the new law of Christ is the law of love. The second part is that following Christ's salvation act, we see a seismic shift in God's people. The inclusions of the Gentiles changes how God's people are governed. They're not this Christian nation state anymore, as we talked about. And rather, they're this global people from all kinds of tribes. And so now we establish that shellfish laws and others like it served One grand purpose, to set us apart. But today, Christians are found in every culture on earth. And so today, if you were to stop eating shellfish, it would do absolutely nothing to distinguish you as a follower of Christ. Does the act of wearing a cotton poly blend or not wearing a cotton poly blend somehow make you stand out as one of God's people in this world today? No, it doesn't. It accomplishes absolutely nothing to stand out as a person of God. So that law is fulfilled in Christ. Romans 7, 6 tells us that, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So this changes our original question quite a bit. It's not, why don't we keep the shellfish law? It's really... If God has fulfilled it, why do we keep any law? And the answer lies in Christ. Under the new covenant, we move to what Scripture calls the law of Christ, and that is the law of love. He brings along some of the Old Testament law in and of itself, and we discussed that already, but if you love God and your neighbor, you will obey the law naturally. And so finally, we ask ourselves this. If the answer is, well, yes, some of the Old Testament law carries forward, but not others, then, then principally, that's our last question, how do we tell which ones? Right? We figured out that God fulfilled the law. We figured out that there are certain laws that don't apply anymore. We can, we can see that shellfish is probably going to be one of them. We can see that sexual, sexual ethics are probably going to be ones, the ones that carry over. Right? But how do we tell? That's the final question. How can we look at the Old Testament and see the list of dozens and dozens of commands and say, which one do I have to obey and which one don't I have to obey? And so... There's a couple helpful ways that we approach this. The first is by looking at how the New Testament treats the law that's in question. So for instance, when it comes to food laws, the New Testament very clearly does away with them. This is Mark 7, 14 through 19. And he called the people to him again and said to them, hear me all of you and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile them. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside can't defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declares all foods to be clean. As we examine Scripture in its entirety, we see a lot more clearly what stays and goes. 
For instance, all of God's law regarding ethic of sexuality is brought into the New Testament. So here's the first way that you can tell. Number one, does the New Testament specifically and directly abolish or keep a law? We can go to a whole host of places in the New Testament that, that repeat, re-emphasize, and cement into long-term obedience laws about sexual ethics, right? Of how the Lord created sex and husband and wife and all those kinds of things. Those are clearly repeated in the New Testament. It's not that one obscure verse in Leviticus that somehow got forgotten. It's, it's all over the New Testament as well. And so you can say, well, that was an Old Testament law and Christ fulfilled it. Well, but yes, but after Christ, it's repeated still in Scripture over and over again. Meanwhile, the food laws are clearly abolished through the words of Jesus himself. Jesus himself declared that foods are clean. It's not what comes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out from your heart that defiles you. Right? We move from Old Testament law to issues of heart and love. And so the first barometer, the first metric is, is it mentioned elsewhere in Scripture? That's why it's important that we become a, a student of God's word on a holistic scale. We look at all of it. Because we want to know, does that weird thing that Leviticus tells me I can't do show up again? And when it shows up, is it condemned or approved? So congratulations, you can eat shrimp. And if you have a cultural Jewish background, I hereby absolve you, you can also eat bacon. Amen. World without bacon. Sad world indeed. Right. The second way when there's not an explicit permission or, or anti-claim kind of given is this. Ask yourself, does keeping this law that I see in the Old Testament, does keeping that law draw me away from loving God and neighbor? Or does it draw me towards loving God or neighbor? Or is it entirely irrelevant? Chances are, if the law in the Old Testament is entirely irrelevant to the question of loving God and neighbor... Well, it's probably an old civil or ceremonial law that gets to be absolved. So in other words, does eating or not eating shellfish somehow increase or decrease your love of God and of neighbor? No. Now it could. Do you have a spouse that you married who has severe shellfish allergies? I mean, that's a practical thing, but it might be that in that circumstance, to love neighbor, a.k.a. your husband or wife, means to abstain from such things, right? I have family that's really allergic to fish. I never really ate fish growing up, to my wife's dismay, because she loves fish. Every time she makes it in her house, I smirk. I don't actually hate it all that much, but I, like, I'm instinctively like, fish. I'd rather have a burger. Right? But do you see how the, a law that's seemingly innocuous could have a time where it comes up and says, yeah, maybe we should obey this. Alcohol is one of those things. Right? There's no explicit forbidding of, of consuming alcohol given in, in Scripture. But there might be times when you're with somebody where it could cause them to stumble. And you say, well, no, I'm going to abstain in this moment. Because in order to love neighbor, you give this up. Right? That becomes the barometer. Does it or does it not help me or increase my love of God or neighbor? And if it doesn't help, chances are you probably shouldn't do it. Right? 
one. So those are the, the two helpful barometers. The, the scriptures of the Lord are comprehensive and all approved for, for teaching and training in righteousness, even the food laws. We see them, and when we see laws about shellfish and we wonder, how does that possibly help me or apply to me? The way that it helps you is by seeing that God goes to extreme lengths to make his people distinct from those around him so that they can be holy and consecrated. Those were laws for a time and a place that no longer serve their intended purpose. Some of the laws and things that God tells us to do that we question in the culture today very much still serve the purpose of drawing us closer to him. Because loving God means that we say the way that you have designed and created this order, this world, myself and my identity and who I am, the way you've made me is good and right and true. Right? To love God, we live into and embrace the identity that he has given us rather than going off and doing whatever we want or being whoever we want. Right? It helps us love God and neighbor more to live according to his command and his identity as we have been created. It doesn't help or hinder us love God more to eat shrimp. Right? So that is, that is the barometer. The question is this. Will you choose in obedience? Not because you feel like you have to, not out of a begrudging nature. Christ has died and paid for all. But will you choose an obedience that moves you closer to the love of God and the love of neighbor? Or will you be a person who rebels and moves further away in order to serve your own interest? And we'll attempt to twist scripture rather than press into what God has for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for laws about shellfish. We thank you that you at one point decided to call your people unto yourself. To make them unique and distinctly yours. To set them apart as holy and that you call us to be holy as you are holy as well. Lord, obedience to that holiness looks different today than it looked back then. Our call to distinctiveness in this world is one of love. You call us to love others radically, sacrificially, even when it's hard, even when there are enemies. Because by that, people will know that we are Christians, by the way that we love. And so, God, we pray that you would equip us to be a people that love radically, deliberately, deeply, sacrificially in this world. We praise you for your word. We praise you that as we've continued to look at strange passages that 2 Timothy 3.16 holds true. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, for training in righteousness so that we might be more edified. God, we praise you for your word and we thank you for it. We pray that it would shape us and mold us. We pray that as we go out from this place that we would be equipped to love you more and to demonstrate that love to neighbor more. We pray for opportunities this week to encounter people in our spheres of influence, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our offices on walks, in parks, with other children and parents. You would bring people to us that we might be able to share the love of Christ with them. Be with us as we do that. Equip our conversations. We pray that your spirit goes ahead of us. We love you and praise you. And all as people said.